0: Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Psalms, chapter 24, verses 1 through 5. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not trust in an idol or swear by false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Good morning. We are, as a church, studying the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And if you're a guest with us, you can look on the back of your outline, or the bulletin, you can see the outline, the study guide, and you can follow along, open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. That's where we're going to be today. I read about a young girl that was baptized and as is often the case with churches and families, the church gave her a Bible and uh, lots of the family was there to to celebrate and and afterwards they were all together and um, one of the little girls in the family um, asked the grandmother and said, "'Grandmom, did you ever have a church give you a Bible?' And the grandma said, well, yes, when I was 12 years old, I was baptized, and the church gave me a Bible. And this little girl just thought about for a moment how far back that must have been and said, with all seriousness, you mean it was just an Old Testament? (laughs) We've been studying the Old Testament and what we're learning is some of these stories, of course, are familiar to us, but what we also see is there is incredible application and relevance, even for today. In our last study, we looked at the life of Moses, how his uh, beginning was uh, questionable at best. Uh, Pharaoh had sent the edict for all the babies to be thrown into the Nile, but God protected Moses, even from that early age. And working through his mother and in setting all the circumstances up, he grew up in Pharaoh's palace. We remember the story when he grew older, he realized that he was an Israelite by birth. And at one time saw that Egyptian mistreating one of his own. And he took his life. So for the next 40 years, Moses was on the run, living his life in obscurity. But God appeared to him in that burning bush and, and, and spoke to Moses and said, You're the man. You're the messenger. I need you to go. And speak to Pharaoh. And we remember that interchange. How Moses said, no, not me. And he went back and forth. And, and, and yet God convinced him, yes, you are the one. And so Moses goes and he talks to Pharaoh. And after ten plagues, Pharaoh finally relents. And decides that he will let these Egyptians uh, free of the Israelites. let them go. Estimates are two million, maybe three. This huge throng of people, they begin this exodus. And as they do, you remember the story, they got pinned into the Red Sea, and God again works a miracle, and He separates the sea, and they cross over on dry land. That's where we ended two weeks ago. Today we pick up the story. It's been about three months, and the children are on their way. The children of Israel are on their way to this land that God's going to show them. In Exodus 19, look at verse 4 through 6. This is God speaking. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What I want you to see here in chapter 5 of the story, this book that we're using as our, our theme, to help us get through, this is a huge transitional point in scripture God is not just going to interact with certain individuals or just talk to a few people as one author says God will begin to share life with all of his people for the first time since back in the Garden of Eden so God is making this this uh, covenant this agreement with the children of Israel and he wants to make sure they've got some skin in the game so he invites Moses up to the mountain this is one of those things when you, when you read through the Bible and you get the detail, you realize Moses went up to the mountain twice. He went up first to the mountain and God reveals to him the plan. And so then Moses comes down to the mountain and he shares that with all the people. The elders of the people gather together this huge throng and they say, we will do everything the Lord has said. Look there in your Bibles, verses 7 and 8. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. If you're filling the blanks, I've got that at the very top of the page. That's what they said. They, they, they got this message and they said, We are in. We will do everything the Lord has said. Now, what is about to take place next is big. God reveals these commandments and the Israelites commit to obeying God who led them out of Egypt. And I want you to see two, two areas in this study. The first is this. God has a standard for the people to follow. And that's what we think of. We think of the, these Ten Commandments. There's the standard for people to follow. And remember, back up a little bit. God has kept His promise to Abraham. All the way back in Genesis chapter 12, God promised that He would build a great nation. And here stands this nation of people. It's Israel. And they're at the base of Mount Sinai, and they're ready to become God's special people, this holy nation. And God has kept his promise. He's led Israel to this place. And what he wants to know is if they're with him. And so from the top of Mount Sinai, God looks out over this new nation like any father would over a family. And he says, you know, he wants what's best for his children. So God gives to Moses these stone tablets with the Ten Commandments. Moses ascends the mountain. He leaves his, his brother Aaron in charge there on the, on the ground level. God's hidden from the people, but he's there in this dense cloud. And I want you to get that imagery. These millions of people at the base of the mountain... This cloud that descends. The presence of God is there. Moses is called up. And the people know that's where he's going. To be with God. To get this law. To get these commands. This is an amazing picture. But meanwhile, as we would say, back on the ranch, they get a little restless. They get tired of waiting. One day becomes two. One week becomes two weeks. Becomes three weeks. Becomes four weeks, they begin to ask all kinds of questions. Where is Moses? What happened to him? Is he still alive? What's the deal? It's 40 days before Moses would come back down, and they're beginning to doubt God's plan. Exodus 32, verse 1, it tells us that the Israelites say to Aaron, Come, make us gods who will go before us. The people have already given up on Jehovah God. So they go to Aaron, make us gods. Now, a couple of observations just right off the bat. First, 40 days is a long time. Let's just say that. 40 days is a long time to wait. But also remember this, the Israelites, their norm, their life, for the last 430 years, they have been immersed in this polytheistic culture. What is normal to them is to have a whole bunch of gods that look like all kinds of animals and things. That is their norm. So for them to say for this to to Aaron is just for them, same old, same old. That's what they've been used to. Come, make us gods who will go before us. That word gods, literally, would make us a god. It's Elohim. It's the same word that's in your Bible here in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created. Make us Elohim is what they're saying to to Aaron. Look in verse 2. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioned it with a tool. Then he said... This is your God. This is your Elohim, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. When you read these words, you, you just have to ask, how does that happen? I mean, how do these people who just 40 days ago said, whatever you say, God, we will do, now they've got this golden calf. And to me, it's perplexing, this blasphemous plan is executed by Aaron. By Moses' right-hand man, the one who was his spokesperson to the Pharaoh. The one who was front row. I mean, he saw it all. It wasn't just second-hand information. You wouldn't believe what happened in Pharaoh's palace. Aaron was there. He saw God working. Every miracle, he saw it all. And the people, they go right along with it. And again, they're the very same people who just days before had said to God... Everything Jehovah commands, everything the Lord has spoken, we will do. But I say that I also have to say, we shouldn't be too surprised. Because we see it today, don't we? People say one thing's with their lips, and yet they mean another, even to God. And I know sometimes we read this story and we're thinking, how big is this cow anyway? I mean, if it's just made from earrings. I mean, would it be something you would sit on your table you know, was it the size of a building? How, how big was it? But you know, we've got to go back and, and remember what we'd studied. In Genesis, I mean, Exodus 11, as they gained their, their freedom there, the Bible says God made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward them and gave them what they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. I get the idea that the Egyptians here, they had witnessed, I mean, the death of the firstborn, they had experienced. The power of Jehovah God. And so there's this mindset, go. Just get out. Whatever you want, you take it. Don't don't refuse. Anything. In fact, if you read, you'll notice that some of the Egyptians went with them. We don't always deal with that, but it's in there. They were so impressed with the power of God. So these slaves are, as we would say, loaded. They've got the goods. So they're given all this gold. And they make this calf. Moses comes down the mountain. God had told him that the people had rebelled, but he sees it. He hears the music. One author says, and they're partying like it's well, they're partying like it's 1446 BC. The woodstock on steroids, it's bad. And Moses can't believe his God told him it was happening, but now he's seeing it. It's a wild party. Moses gets so angry. That footnote there. Moses gets angry. We're going to see that over and over again with Moses. He throws down the tablets when Moses confronted Aaron Exodus 32. You know, Aaron makes these excuses. But look there in your Bibles, Exodus 32, verse 24. To me, this is amazing. How lame this is. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. It is laughable, isn't it? That sounds like a six-year-old that just broke the window and says, I have no idea how it happened, mom. You know, It just comes up with something really just absurd. It just happened. But I want you to see something. I want you to notice the irony here. Here is Moses, God's chosen spokesperson, called up to the mountain. This, this close connection. And at the exact same time, God's chosen people are down at the base of the mountain and they've abandoned God. It's happening at the same time. Time, do you get that irony? I mean, to me, that's just you—you you, can't—you can't miss that. And to think about this too, they've already broken the first two commands: "You shall have no other god before me," "You shall make no graven image." And while God is personally writing these down for His people, His people are already breaking them. The Bible says, if you read in your Bible. Moses burned the calf, melted it down, poured it into the water supply, made them drink this metallic water. One commentary said, that's the ancient equivalent of your mom washing your mouth out with soap and hoping that you learn the lesson. But that was nothing compared to what happened next. Moses looked at these Israelites and says, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. What a question. Whoever is for the Lord, you come to me. And it was the Levites who stepped forward. There were still others, evidently, that continued in idolatry. Look in your Bibles, Exodus 32, verse 27 through 28. They're about to be judged. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man shall strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. These Levites, we know because we've read ahead, the, these become God's chosen people, the, the tribe that the priests, the spiritual leaders would come from. I can't help because it maybe stems back to this obedience, at this moment of truth when Moses asked, who's on the Lord's side? 3,000 of their own people killed. And that sounds harsh. I mean, you know, Had they not learned their lesson? Evidently not. See, here's the point. We've got to get this, sin is breaking faith with God. It's adultery against God. You might note that word, adultery, because God's going to use that over and over again as He talks about His people as we keep reading through the story. Moses goes back up to the mountain and gets a replacement set for the commandments. And these are familiar to us, but I want to go over them again. These first four of the commandments deal with our relationship with God. Again, if you just kind of recap what's going on here. God hears His people cry. He delivers them out of bondage. But they need a, a, a standard to follow. They, they need some rules. They need some order. They need to understand. You've got to leave your Egyptian ways and go with Jehovah's ways. With God, What are God's ways? Well, He takes this opportunity to explain them. And again, remember what He said. All the people responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. So God reveals these house rules. Put them on the screen. It's on your study guide as well. And I I chose this from the American Standard Version, not because of the vowels and the King's English, but really because it's a more accurate translation because it uses God's name the way the original text does. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou Thou shalt not make unto thee a graven image. Thou shalt not take the name of Jehovah thy God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. These first four at their very core. You've studied these before. But even if not, what you see here is there is no hesitation. God just says, I'm a jealous God. And these are all about our relationship with Him. Honor thy father and thy mother. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. If we're God's people... It should make a difference in our everyday lives, the way we relate with others. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet. These last three we see, they, they aim to defeat deceit and greed. That little seed that's in all of us. And how do we keep that at bay? Because Satan is always looking for a way to exploit that. And again, let's make the application, folks. It's the same for you and me today. We will say to God, maybe not the exact words, but in our own hearts, everything the Lord has spoken, we will do. And think of the the parallels. We're still called to obey like these wandering Jews. We are the royal priesthood. We are the chosen ones, the chosen few. And He's the Lord who brought His children out of Egypt. He's the Lord that brought us out of sin. He's the Lord who rescued us out of darkness and brought us into His light. He's the Lord of second chances. He's the Lord who loved us enough to send His own Son. And the problem comes when we want to take God off the throne and put ourselves there and call our own shots and make our own ways. Let's be real about it. We don't like anybody telling us what to do. Isn't that true? We don't like anybody telling us, even God. And we bristle at that. But before we leave this, I want to point out a pattern. We see this. I mean, we're barely into the second book of the Old Testament, but we already see a pattern of God's people saying, I'm I'm with you, God, and then having a moment of weakness and they fail. I mean, Adam and Eve in the garden walking with God. What a close communion. And yet, they disobeyed and ate of that fruit of the tree that they were forbidden. After the flood, that righteous man, Noah, who did everything exactly right, got himself drunk, and Genesis 9 talks about his indecent exposure. And even Moses, God's hand-chosen spokesperson, who God did great things through, at this moment is a man of faith, as we keep reading, this anger problem is going to keep rearing its ugly head. And at this point of the story, God is laying a foundation that regardless of who you are, even no matter what you say, God understands our disposition. He understands that sometimes we blow it, that we're all sinful, that we all disappoint Him, that we never measure up. What I want you to see is early in your Bibles, right here at the beginning, God is making the case for a Messiah that is to come. And he drops little hints along the way. See, sometimes we look around at our circumstances and we see other people that are like at the base of the mountain. You know, say, you know, if you just came to my family reunion, you'd see what a good Christian I am. Or if you compared my language with the folks I work with, you'd think I just got it down pat. Pat. Because we look around and we see others who are not walking with God. And they're very pagan. And so compared to them, we look pretty good. But what we know in Scripture, when we bow before God, when we stand before the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses, we're not going to be compared to our co-workers or our family. We're going to be compared to the holiness of Jesus Christ the perfect Son of God. And as we said at the very beginning of the chapter 1 of this story, what we really do have is an earthly dilemma that is setting the stage for a heavenly solution. Fast forward to the New Testament. I put this on the screen. James 2, verse 10. See, God would know that we would struggle with this emphasis of our own righteousness. Look how far we've come. Look what He says here. Whoever, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. The best way I've heard this explained is simply this. It doesn't matter if your, hole, if your window has a hole in it or if it's got 10 holes in it, it's still a broken window and needs replacing. That's what the law is for us. It doesn't matter if you break one command or all, all 10 of them, you've broken the commands of God. And the Ten Commandments, you're going to see this as God keeps revealing Himself. It's like a wedding ceremony that's going on here. God is choosing Israel as His bride. And they're exchanging these vows. God wants to know, I'm here for you. Are you here for me? Are we in this together? He promised He would build this nation. He would deliver them out of Egypt. He would get them to the promised land. And God has been faithful and He wants His people to be faithful. So let me ask you a question. It's not on the study guide, but just think about this. Why did God give the law? Why did God give the law? It wasn't a new revelation, if I may say that. I mean, murder had been wrong since Cain and Abel. So they knew not to kill. So this is not brand new news necessarily. This is not, here's your new standard of morality. Let me throw this out for you to think about. I think God gave the commandments to show that you can't keep them. Can't do it. You're not perfect. You need a Savior. There's something about our psyche. We like to pat ourselves on the back. I got nine out of ten. That's an A in my book. I'm in. A past, I'm a good student. I get to go to heaven. That's not the purpose of the law. And to me, this is such an important lesson for us to learn. Because God, as we see here, is a jealous God. He wants your affection. He wants your attention. He wants your commitment. And that's why He says at the very beginning, you can have no other gods before me. Number one, right off the bat. And I know we read this story and we think, you know, but I'm not going to have a golden cow. I mean, really, that's kind of absurd when you think about it for us. But wait a minute. That's command number two. No graven image. What about command number one? God starts with that for a reason, because if you get number one right, then all the others just follow. The order is important here. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. No other gods. That means your salary can't be number one. It means your job can't be number one. It means your family can't be number one. It means your, where you live can't be number one. Sports can't be number one. Shopping can't be number one. No other gods. See, we're supposed to learn from this. We should learn a lesson from 3,000 dead Israelites. God means what He says. And He wants us to follow And make God-honoring, wise decisions. You know, 400 years after this, the, 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 the Jews are still talking about it. They can't move on. In fact, they remember this because it's so important. Psalm 106. King David refers to it. He writes about how God rebuked the Red Sea. I love that wording. Dried it up, it says there. He goes on to say this in verse 19. This is from the New Revised Standard Version. They made a calf at Horeb and worshipped a cast image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Wondrous works in the land of Ham, awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Did you catch what he's saying here? Look at verse 20 especially. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. How do you trade Jehovah God for an animal? A bull? This cow? This calf? But it's a fair question. Because we do the same thing. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a hobby. Maybe it's a paycheck. Maybe it's a friendship. Maybe it's family. Maybe it's just comfort. All kinds of things can come between us and God. And it's a ludicrous trade if you think about it. But we all do it. Very quickly, let me share one other area in this particular chapter of the story. Moses is on the mountain. God announces this big news. Part of this covenant is not just the Ten Commandments. I mean, that's a huge part of it, but that's really not the biggest part of it. The biggest part of it is this there is a place for God to dwell. God is coming down to be with His people. That's a huge step here. And in Exodus 25, verse 8 and 9, God instructs Israel to construct a sanctuary. He gives specific directions here. What's supposed to be in there. How it's supposed to be arranged. The dimension. It's like this portable tent. Sometimes your Bible calls it the tabernacle. And this is going to be a place where God comes to be with His people. And it's portable, so as they're still moving, as they're still going to their promised land, they can take it with them. Now, don't confuse this with the temple. Sometimes we talk about the temple, we talk about the tabernacle. The temple is built hundreds of years later, and it's permanent. This one is this tent. It's the tabernacle. And inside the tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant. Remember that? The Ark, this wooden chest covered with gold, About four feet by two and a half feet. And what's inside? Do you remember? If you watched Indiana Jones, you would know. We know what's inside, don't we? The commands of God are there. It's interesting. And all the times you've heard this story, all the times you've read this story, have you ever noticed that God is anticipating? These people's need for some kind of visual. See, he's called Moses up to the mountain. He's given them the law, and he's saying, "I'm going to come down there and be with you like never before." These people have never seen this, and all the while they're they're making this calf so they can see their God. But God's got a plan for them to see His presence. There's this tabernacle. So as they make their way through this pilgrimage, they go, you know, God is there. God is with them. These people needed that and God anticipates that. Here's what we need to realize. These Israelites repent. They beg Moses for forgiveness. And, and Moses goes before God and begs forgiveness for them on behalf of them. Look at Exodus 34, verse 8 and 9. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. O oh Lord, i found favor in your eyes, he said. Then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin. And take us as your inheritance. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. If you're the kind that likes to underline your Bibles, underline that word, because that's an important word. I'm making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people who, live, who you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. And then in verse 14, do not worship any other god, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. It's kind of a reminder. We should have got that lesson already. But I want you to notice in verse 9, Moses says, let the Lord go with us. That's huge. That's huge. Moses doesn't want to take a step without God being right there with him. He invites God into the presence of the camp. He wants God right there with the people. And notice, God does not say, I'm going to make a contract with you people. It's not a contract, it's a covenant. Huge difference, big difference. It's not called the Ark of the Contract, it's called the Ark of the Covenant. Because God says, your allegiance is to me, to no one else, to nothing else. But again, we read this story, and it's thousands of years ago, and it's in a land far away, and sometimes we may even have a cartoon version of it in our head and not realize this really happened. But still, there is a little bit of a skeptic in us, and we ask, what does this really have to do with us today? Well, I'm glad you asked. It has everything to do with us today. Because if you can, just kind of step back and see all that you've read, all that you know about Moses and what's going on here, and see the desire of God. The passionate desire of God. His love for His people. And all He really wants is for His people to be redeemed. He wants you to be okay. Okay. He wants you to be His people. He's saying to us, just as He did to Israel, I want to dwell with you. I want to do life with you. Everyday life with you. When Jesus came to earth, there was a name given to Him. You remember? Emmanuel. Remember what Emmanuel means? God with us. God took on the form of a human. A helpless babe. Lived a a perfect life. Died in atoning death, came back from the grave for our sins. And for those who accept Jesus Christ and become a follower of His, His spirit comes down to dwell not in a tabernacle, not a temporary tent, not even a permanent temple, not a church building inside His people. God wants to live with you. In you. One author said this, God started above us, then He moved around us, and through Jesus Christ and what He did in His Holy Spirit, He is now within us. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple And that God's Spirit lives in you. But God doesn't demand His way. He doesn't barge in against your will. He waits for you to invite Him. Remember Moses' words? Lord, go with us. That's what He wants to hear from you. Lord, go with me. I need you. I can't do it on my own. Yes, we will disappoint Him. You're never going to be able to keep every single command. And that's why Jesus came. Because He did. And He's our perfect hope. One of my struggles in this study is I just can't, I can't, can't hit everything. There's just so many tangents here or there. We didn't get into this, but in 1 Corinthians 10... Paul uses the analogy of the Israelites going through the Red Sea as a a parallel to our baptism. If you ever doubted baptism, you you just go back to the Old Testament and you kind of see the theme going on. At some point, you have to decide where your allegiance is. And baptism becomes that. You cross through the Red Sea. You go under the water. Jesus washes you clean. You forever say, I am His. And God does the same thing. He's yours. We're going to sing a song to encourage you to do just that obey His command to be baptized, confess that Jesus is Lord, the Son of God, or if we can pray for you, just to have a faith that never gives up. Once it comes, so we stand and sing to encourage